Well, good morning. I am Randy, I'm minister here. Uh, we are, we're starting a new series today. I'm excited about it. In fact, I've been wanting to preach this series for a long time. You know, a uh, series kind of uh, percolate in your mind and you decide when the best time to roll this out. This is kind of a long one because this one is through the whole book of Ephesians. And we're going to be asking the question, who are you throughout that study of that book for the next several weeks? Uh, but one of the neat things we're going to see uh, is we're going to see testimonies like this. This was just kind of a compilation of, of a lot of uh, comments that have in the series, because each week or about every week, we're going to have a, a video testimony of folks like you, many of you uh, in our church who tell their story, and you're going to be surprised. You're going to be surprised. Who would know that Bo Morgan was a bouncer in a bar? Uh, you're going to find some things out uh, about people, but what they're going to tell you is who they used to be and who they are now because of Jesus Christ. So that is amazing. Uh, we're still in the process of recording some of those videos, so if you've got a story you want to share, uh, we love, love testimonies. So uh, we invite you to, to uh, be a part of not only sharing testimony, but be a part of our services each week. So we're starting a new today, and I want to ask a question of you uh, this morning to kind of open it up. Who are you? Who are you? Every time I ask that question, I think about the who, the song, you know, who are you? Some of you are like, who is the who, and what are you talking about? But there was a group, that doesn't matter, a long time ago, at any rate. any rate, who do you think you are? What is your identity? Who are you? You know, that question is pretty important because once you figure out who you are, then you know what to do. If you don't know who you are, then you don't know what to do, and you're going to be just doing this or that, whatever feels good at the moment. You're going to be giving in to what pleases other people. You're going to be all over the map if you never know who you are or what you are supposed to do. So how would you answer the question? In starting this series, how would you answer the question, I am blank? Maybe you say, I am blessed, or maybe you feel like you're cursed. Maybe you say, I'm rich, I'm poor. Maybe you say, I'm young, I'm old, I'm smart, I'm dumb, I'm single, I'm married, divorced, I'm successful, I'm a failure. How do you see yourself? You know, image is a big thing, isn't it? It's important the way we view ourselves because that sometimes shapes the way we view God, the way we view other people, the way that we approach life and almost everything. And I want to tell you, as you, we kind of begin to go through this series and look, the study of the book of Ephesians, you're going to understand that you are so much more than you ever thought you were. And you're going to understand that your value is so much greater than you ever thought that you were worth. And a lot of it has to answer the question, who do you see yourself through? Whose eyes do you see yourself through? I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, it probably begins when you're a small child in the relationship in which you are born. It starts with your family. And, uh, you know, we all know that birth order has something to do with that, doesn't it? Maybe you're a firstborn or a middle or a younger uh, child. I'm a middle child. I'm middle. So middle kids are what? Peacemakers, right? I'm in the middle. I'm also the only boy in our family. And so that gave me a kind of a, a new distinction of my own. But, uh, but I'm in the middle there. But what were you like when you were a kid? Were you geeky? Were you, were you a, a weirdo? Were you funny? Were you shy? Were you annoying? You look back and you say you were annoying. Uh, were you athletic? What did people call you? What was your nickname? You know, sometimes those names stick with us, don't they? My dad told me that when he was little, he could not say his name. His name is Randall. He could not say it, so he called himself Betty. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, why would you call yourself Betty for anything? But I, probably if he called himself Betty, other people called him Betty too. I'm happy to say that nobody knows him as Betty today, uh, so that, that's really a good thing. But, you know, maybe it's sometimes it's what we project on our, our kids, isn't it? 
Our, our youngest daughter, her name is Laura Catherine. And both of those names are Lori's grandparents. They're old names, L-O-R-A, Laura Catherine. And we thought, you know, a little kid is not going to be called, want to call either of those names. So we wanted to call her Katie. So for the first eight years of her life, she was Katie. Many of you knew her as Katie. When she was eight years old, she says, Katie is not my name. My name is Laura Catherine. So now she is Laura. You know, going forward, she renamed herself. I want to tell you the worst nickname I ever knew growing up is I knew a guy, his nickname was Booger. Now, I, gotta, I, I almost know where that came from. But I mean, can you imagine going through life with your nickname being Booger? Everybody called him that. Nobody thought about it. Your identity sometime, how you feel about yourself, probably began when you were a small child. Were you loved or were you resented? Were you nurtured or were you neglected? Were you spoiled? You know, some people go through their entire life knowing that they were not wanted, they were not planned. Their parents cruelly sometimes will say, you were a surprise, we never planned on you. And you know, we laugh about that, but how does that make a person feel sometimes? How do you see yourself? You know, I think a lot of us have maybe our first identity crisis when we go to middle school. And nobody knows who you are in middle school, right? I mean, it is probably the most difficult time of most people's life. Very complicated. You're in a new school, and many times you have new responsibilities. You have new accountability. You have new hormones. New expectations are on you suddenly. And all these things you never even thought about suddenly are so important. Things like clothes wearing the right clothes, your hair, caring for your hair, your complexion, uh, your height, your voice, is has it changed or not? Being part of the in crowd never mattered in elementary school, suddenly is so important in middle school. And all those things are the highest priority. And then you get into high school and the pressure goes off a little bit. But now everybody wants to know, what are you going to be when you grow up? Not too many high school kids know what they're going to be, who they're going to be, when they grow up. I, I had no idea. There was only one thing I knew that I would not be, and that was a minister. I knew that for sure. So much for high school plans, right? We don't know what we're going to be, but everybody's pressuring us to find out. And then the summer after graduation, that identity crisis time, when you don't know what you are, are you a, a kid or are you an adult? You know, you feel like a kid, but they're treating you like an adult, like you're going to make these big decisions. What do you do? So then you hit college, and suddenly in college, you get the chance to reinvent yourself. I want to know how many of you guys went to college and reinvented yourself? Okay, there are a couple of you. I'm surprised, I really am, because Lori and I both did. We acknowledge that. When I went to college, I was shy and quiet. I mean, I, I didn't like to be uh, around people a lot, but I said, you know what? Nobody in college knows me at all. So I'm going to be different. And so I was the complete opposite. I really was. I reinvented myself in college. I didn't date much in high school. In college, I wanted to date, you know. It was different there. The image that we project can be different. We can choose that. You know, in college, your parents are no longer there, so you determine a lot about who you are, right? Nobody says you have to go to church, so you decide, will I go to church? What will my life be like? Will I drink? Will I sleep around? Will I use drugs? What kind of friends am I going to choose in college? How many of us know that the people around us help shape the person that we become? And what many of you discovered in college is that the person you thought or the job you thought you wanted to do or who you wanted to be when you grew up was totally wrong. And so you change your major at least once in college because that person that you are, were becoming was different than what you thought it would be. And do you realize the choice of your occupation 
will determine maybe your life for the next 40 years or so? That's not a big decision, is it? There are huge things that we determine in different times of our life, identity crisis times. So you get a job, and then you, now you know who you are. Because when someone asks you, who are you, you say, oh, I'm a teacher, I'm a nurse, I'm a doctor, I'm an engineer, I'm a minister. And your job defines you. If you're successful in your job, then you're successful all the way around. And your job defines you. Or a lot of people go through their entire lifetime never knowing what they're going to be when they grow up because they say, who I am now is not who I want to be the rest of my life. And one day I'll grow up and become something else, right? We're looking for identity. And once the job is settled, then you decide you're going to get married and you meet that special person and you get married and you think that they're going to help you become who you want to be. And they're thinking the same thing about you. And so you come together in two separate identities that are still forming they, get, they clash and conflict, and we call that bliss marriage, right? It's awesome. Awesome when you come together and you expected them to complete you and vice versa. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's difficult sometimes for both, but it's probably more difficult for the woman because if she's a godly woman and she understands, you know, what the Bible teaches, she understands her husband is the leader, she must respect him, that might mean that she sacrifices something, her plan, for life. That can happen, can it? And the identity is kind of thrown up in the air. Well, you figure all that out, at least you get through it, and then kids come along. And your identity changes again, right? And moms, new moms, the first thing to change about you is your figure, probably. Because being pregnant does something to women's bodies, right? Not only that, I've noticed that being pregnant, a woman being pregnant, oftentimes does something to the husband's body as well. It's like a sympathy weight gain or something. I'm going to, you know, they, they start to look more alike as they kind of both pile up. You know what I'm talking about. And about this time, a lot of parents start asking, what, who am I? Am I an adult? I feel like an adult now. And so now I've got to stop playing video games all the time. I've got to take this responsibility seriously. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow up. And you know, you don't realize this, but when you have kids, the child becomes the center of your life. And they determine everything about your life pretty much going forward, what you do and when you do it, like eating. Moms never eat hot meals for many, many years, right? You just kind of give that up when you're, when you're a parent. You kind of understand that. It, it determines who, uh, when you sleep or how long you sleep, where you go on vacation, what your hobbies are. It determines who your friends are a lot of times. And your identity many times is you are now blank's father or mother, because they know you best through your child. At least the other kids, they just kind of share. That's how you identify. Your identity may be that parent that follows their child all over the place, all over the country, never missing a game or meet. And we know that some parents actually project their own goals, their own image onto their child. They want this child to be a great athlete. They may have been good. They, maybe they never were. They want their kid to be. So they try to live through their child vicariously, right? And that's the image you develop for yourself. Then all too soon your child gets older and they don't need you anymore, more independent. And then one day your nest is empty and you look at your spouse and you say, who are you? And then you say, for what matter, who am I? Because for years I've been my child's parent and I'm kind of understanding who I am individually now. Another identity crisis has come along, sometimes divorce, sometimes widowhood, sometimes uh, loneliness. And your identity is in total crisis conflict and chaos. 
That's sad, isn't it? <laughs> but did you notice through that whole thing that we did not ever ask the question, who does God say that you are? Did you notice that? That we can live our entire lifetime and we can never ever ask the question, who am I in God's eyes? That's the saddest thing of all. Because if you don't understand that, you're going to be in constant turmoil because your identity is based upon your current situations or upon, in, or upon whatever people tell you you ought to be at the moment. What we want is something solid. We want something that is reliable, that doesn't change. We don't want the world or the current moment, the situation, to tell us who we are. We want God who made us to tell us who we are. So who does God say that you are? The answer is very easy, and the answer is very quick in the Bible. It's in the first book of the Bible. It's in the first chapter of the Bible, verses 27 and 28. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God said, let us. Who are us? We know it was God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity that existed from even before the beginning. It's always, he's always existed. And God said, let us make mankind in our image after the likeness of God. And then it said, as in everything God did, and it was good, and God blessed them. Why? Because he was pleased. He was pleased of this creation that would propagate itself down through time that would always be made in the image of God. Now, what does it mean, though, to be made in the image of God? What does that mean? Obviously, it means several things. One sentence will not complete that, but what does it mean? I think it means to be made in the image of God. It means that we are made to connect and communicate with God. Because we are in His image, we have this ability and capability and the desire to understand God and know God. That we, uh, we want to know Him. We reach out to Him. There is a hunger, a desire, a longing to know God. And the God that is not, not that the world pictures or that defines, but the God is revealed in the Bible. The Bible tells us who God is. The Bible tells us who we are. And that's the reason why we need to be in the Bible daily so that we can know God and know what God wants from us and understand who we are in His eyes. That's important. Being made in the image of God also means that we are below God, but we are above everything else. We are humbled, but we are also honored. You've got to understand that idea. People tend to go one of two ways when they think about themselves or their own value. People either say, think so highly of themselves that they think they are God, many people do that, or they think so little of themselves, they think they're worthless. And neither one of those extremes are accurate. God loves us. God made us in His image. So we are to have humility, and the word humility means that we know our place. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, the lower, the lowest part. It means you just know your place. You understand where you are. Understand that you're not like the other creations. You are above them. You are made in the image of God, which no thing, nothing else is or nobody else is but us. And that we are a child of God, above everything else, below God. 
And in that place, God has created us just as we are. You may not like your image or who you are, but God made you just like that, a part of his divine design. And that's important. Being made in the image of God also means that we are made to mirror God, that we are to reflect God. God wants his attributes to be visible on the earth. God didn't just start the world and, and set it into, into motion and, and walk away. God wants to be involved, and God wants his attributes and his characteristics to be visible. The Bible says God is love. So what does God want? He wants us to reflect the love of God to other people so that that attribute is known in the world. God is truth, so we're called to be people of truth. God is forgiving, so we are to forgive others. God is generous. You get the idea. All those things that we experience of God, we are then to reflect to the rest of the world. Now, we don't do it to look good. That's not the goal. But when we look good, God looks good. That's why we're called to live righteous and holy lives in a corrupt world, to make God look good. The goal is not for the world to know us and admire us, but to know God, to make him famous, and to bring glory to God. That's why Jesus is called the image of the invisible God. Ever read that? He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus came to reflect the love of God, reveal God to us. And that's why he said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus shows us everything we need to know about God. He shows us the love of God, the compassion of God. He died on the cross to show us the extent of that. He rose to show us the power of God. He lives to show that life we can have through him eternally with God. In the image of God also means that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. Do you notice that when God did all of this, God blessed them, and that blessing echoes down through time? We are blessed. One of the ways you should define your life all the time is that I'm blessed. I am a blessed person because of all that God has given to me. But that blessing does not just selfishly remain with me. It has to be blessed, spread to other people as well. It echoes down through us and down through time. God made us who we are. We are unique and special. The identity that he has blessed us with is revealed to us. It is not uh, achieved. It is received, not achieved. It is not something that you create. You may be successful in some area, but God gave you the ability to do that because he blessed you in that way. Not because you just came up with it on your own. You were blessed by God. God has done this in us. And understand, too, that you are not more valuable or less valuable than anybody else. You may feel like other people really count more than you. But that, again, is Satan trying to discourage you. We'll talk more about that in a second. But the reality is that all of us are made in the image of God as we are, all colors, all nationalities, rich, poor, born, unborn, old, young, it doesn't matter. As Christians, we believe in the dignity and the value of all people, every life, because we're made again in the image of God. Now, that's how God created us. That was in the beginning, but we all know that there was some brokenness that happened shortly after that, and all of us experienced the fallout of that. Part of the reason why we have poor image of ourselves, or we don't think of ourselves very valuable is because of what happened next. So let's look what happened. Early in creation, Satan, himself a created being with an identity opposite to God, Satan came to Adam and Eve and challenged their identity. It's really what he was doing. He challenged God's love for them, and he challenged their value to God. He asked them, does God really love you? Does God really want the best for you? Or is God trying to limit who you can become? 
And we all know the story. It all centered on the fruit of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the garden. God had told them they could eat the fruit from any tree except this one. Do not eat that fruit. If you eat it, you will surely die. But Satan came to them and proposed, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you can be like God. God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know everything he knows. But if you eat this fruit, you will have more. You will be greater. You deserve more. And we know that God has given us everything that we need. It's part of our understanding of God. We don't fall short of anything. But Satan lies to us and says, you know what? It's not enough. It's not enough. You deserve more. You need to be something else, something more. And I want to tell you, I can't count how many times I have seen Christians trade their God-given identity for something Satan told them that they had to have. And it always leads to destruction every single time. I want you to think about this a moment. When we understand who we are in Christ and we decide that's not enough, that we want something more, where does that take us? It always leads to destruction. Let me give you an example of that. A couple are, are married, they're believers, and they're trying to raise their family in the Lord, but then something happens in that relationship. For one of them, that person is not enough. And so they decide to go outside the relationship and have an affair because Satan has said it's, all, it's better there. It's better there. You know, years ago, and I remember so clearly that it was almost always the man. I don't know why. But today, in our church and in our community, it many times is the woman, it's the wife. And I don't understand that except maybe what Satan is doing to destroy people, women's hearts and saying what you have is not enough. But I don't know of how many wives I have seen lately who decided, you know what, my marriage is not enough. My relationship with my husband and my identity in Christ is not enough. I need somebody else. Have you noticed how often that happens today? It is where Satan is building strongholds in people's hearts and minds. Or maybe it's the family who chases after the elusive dream of their child being a professional athlete. We have to sacrifice everything. we got to chase this dream. we got to sacrifice our entire family to run all over the countryside. And you know, it always happens on Sunday, it seems like, to the weekends. And we sacrifice for our kids because we believe that our kids are going to be the athlete professional. And what happens so many times is that somewhere in the mix, they're totally disconnected from God. Or maybe it's a new job that you get that you feel like you have to take more money, but it leads you away from God. And Satan questions our identity in Christ. Is that enough for you? You could be more. And somehow we're totally disconnected from God. You know what the Bible calls this? It calls it idolatry. When we think about idols, we think about a statue. We think about a Buddha or something. I want to tell you, none of us who are sane today would bow down to a statue, right? But we bow down to all other type of idols. There's idolatry in all of our lives. The Bible says that idols are primarily in our hearts, not in public. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make it a God thing that we, then we find our identity in. You know, the reality is that we are all made to worship. We've heard that many times, right? We're all made to worship. We are going to worship something or somebody. It all comes down to who or what we are worshiping in our lives. Are we worshiping God or things or other people? Because we all find our identity in what we worship. Think about that. We all find our identity in what we worship. 
the things that we give our time to, our energy, our money, our emotions, our heart, those are the things that we are worshiping. And more, li- more than likely, when someone says, who are you, we define we it in that way. The athlete, he says, oh, I'm an athlete. You know, this, I'm a professional athlete. Or, you know, maybe it's your job. I'm a, you know, I'm a professional, uh, I'm a doctor, or whatever it might be. We find our identity in whatever we focus on and worship. That's how we define ourselves, many times by our idols. Now, what are some of the idols that we have? This is going to get personal for some of us, all right? But we need to hear these things. What are some of our idols? Well, there's several things that become idols. One thing are the things that define us and give us identity, to give us identity. You know, for some of us, it's, it's the vehicle that we drive, right? It's the image that we want to project. You know, as a guy, you know, I love a truck, I think a truck, I think every guy to drive a truck, you know. I, there was a time when I didn't have a truck, and I didn't, I didn't feel like a real man without a truck, you know. Just confess. So I finally got a truck, not a new truck, but, uh, but this last weekend, I got to tell you this story, this is awesome. Last weekend, I rented a truck, and it was a 2017, had 1,000 miles on it, four-wheel drive, four-door, awesome, beautiful. I rented that because uh, my truck, I'm not sure if it would make, make it the trip. We went to South Carolina to see our daughter. Wasn't sure it was making, so I just rented a truck. I mean, it was nice. And I drove around and I thought, this is nice. You know what? I would have a truck like this. You know, but I was here at the church and I was driving. I was right out here at the end of the driveway, about to pull on the road. And I, I'm sitting there and I look across the road and there is Humera Dale. And I love Humera Dale and John, love them. They, they teach our Financial Peace University. And you know what? They're all about paying cash, which is what everybody ought to do, right? But I'm sitting there in this brand spanking new truck, and Humera knows me, and she knows how cheap I am, and I probably wouldn't do this, but I'm sitting there, and I look at her, and she looks at me, and she goes, and I'm like, what, you know? So when I could, I got to where I could text her. I, I started texting her. I'm going, you're judging me, aren't you? Like... You are judging me. I said, don't you think I should be able to have a, a truck, you know, a nice vehicle? You know, I've been driving junk for years, you know, and, and you know, and now I, I've got this. I, you know, I, I got seven years, financed it really, got a great rate and all that. I started piling it on, you know. In, in the back seat, the kids were going, that's not Pastor Randy's truck. He would never, dr- he would never do that. He would never go into debt like that on a truck. But anyway, anyway. But does your, does your vehicle give you an identity? Does it show the image that you want it to be? You know, for guys who want to drive a truck, you know, then an SUV because you're a guy with a family, and then you got a minivan, and, well, we won't say what that says about your manhood, but <laughs> anyway, we've all had minivans, all right? Or maybe it's clothes. Maybe it's the clothes that you wear. What do we say? Clothes make the man, right? So some people are so caught up in the clothes that they have. Got to have new clothes, expensive clothes. What the image you're going to project, guys? Ladies, what's the image you'll project with your clothes? Will you be conservative or you will be edgy? Will you choose clothes that have a high hemline and a low neckline? What does that say about your image? What about the house that you live in? Is it more than you can afford? You know, I've known people who had a, a beautiful home in the right neighborhood, but no furniture. They couldn't afford that part, you know? And everything's great, but I don't have anything to sit on. Or maybe you got all that stuff, but you're so far in debt that you can't breathe. You know, what about your sheets? Guys, this is amazing to me. I don't know. I'm going to get weird here. Do your sheets have a high Egyptian count, thread count? I want to know that. I want to know why it matters. I want to know why the Egyptians get the right to define how many threads there ought to be in a square inch. 
see how crazy it is in our world today? You know, don't you? Some of you are counting them, all right? The idols can also be the things that we do, right? Your job defines you. You're a lawyer, you're an accountant, you're a teacher, you're a doctor, a deacon, an elder, a pastor, whatever it might be. I have seen church leaders who use their role as an idol to abuse people. We've all seen that. If your identity is in what you do, and then if you do it really well, then you're successful. But if you're mediocre in it, then you're a failure, and that's how you feel about yourself. Listen to this. Who you, who you are determines what you do. What you do does not determine who you are or how valuable that you are. You may have a job that you think doesn't amount to anything, but it's important. In the big scheme, it's really important. You know, we think about I want, one job I wouldn't care to be is a garbage man. I just, I don't know, I wouldn't want to be that. But you know what, if my garbage isn't picked up, I'm hacked off. It's pretty important, isn't it? Pretty important. It doesn't matter what you do. And that job doesn't define you. We can also worship as an idol what other people think of us or expect of us. If you're always seeking the approval of other people and, and you want to be like them, we call that peer pressure today, don't we? And basically, it's, it's us conforming to fit into their mold. But you know what happens in all ages, not just kids. And really, it's a worship of other people, and that is idolatry. Let me give you one more thing that can define you and be your idol. And this is kind of weird. You won't think about this one. Our sufferings can be our identity. They can be our idol. For example, someone might say, you know, I, I grew up and I had a really hard life and I was abused. And that is their identity for the rest of their life. For other people, you know what? They go through a divorce. And as horrible as that is, that's their life. That's the end of their life. That's their identity for the rest of their life. It's true with people who are widowed. People who have been hurt in some way by others or rejected by some people. People who are misunderstood, they become unforgiving. Maybe your identity is that you're sick. Maybe your identity is that you're terminal. Heck, we're all terminal, right? Every one of us are. But sometimes our sufferings can actually form our identity. And then that becomes our idol because we live our life based around that. That's who we are. You may have had all these things in life, but those things do not have to define you. They don't need to define you. Your identity is that you are made in the image and likeness of God and that God loves you and wants to save you. That's your identity. Here's a statement I heard this week that I love. Your sufferings may explain you, but they do not have to define you. Isn't that cool? Your sufferings may explain you, but they don't have to define you. And when you, know, when you think about it, everything about you that is unique your car, your house, your things, your job, your friends, your sufferings, all those things explain who you are. But they should never, ever define who you are or establish and define your identity. Because our identity is in Christ, not in, not in all these things around us or what we've been through. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to begin a new ministry in our church called Celebrate Recovery and what I love about that is, is that it's a, it's a ministry to reach out to people who, who are struggling with these type of things, these types of sufferings, a difficult childhood, abuse, the loss of a loved one, an addiction, a struggle of any sort. And the idea is not that this is who I am. You know, I am not an addict. I am not an alcoholic. That's many programs, you know, you have to just keep repeating that. But no, no, that is my, in my past, but who I am I'm a new person in Christ, and I'm in recovery. 
I'm in redemption. I'm not stuck with who I used to be or who I could be. I am new in Christ. And that will not change. It is secure and built upon a rock. Our hope is in Christ. He is our comfort, our security, and our future. So who are you? Who are you? The next few weeks we're going to be asking that question and answering it several times in the book of Ephesians. And I want to challenge you to really ask yourself the question, who am I? Next week we talk about I am in Christ, which is where it all begins. So I encourage you to come back and share. Bring somebody with you who doesn't know Jesus. They're going to understand what it's like to be in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to be who the world tells us we are. We don't have to be the, the sum total of what we own. We don't have to be uh, the, the, the result of our sufferings or the decisions of others. But God, we can be in Christ. And Lord, our prayer is that everyone here in this room is in Christ. And if they would say that they're not, that they would have a longing, a desire to know you through Jesus. And they would make whatever move it takes to have that conversation. God, we love you and worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.